what if there were a fountain of youth pill that could add decades to your life? Would you take it? Unlocking the Fountain is a podcast about the mysteries of aging and the scientific quest to slow, stop, or even reverse it. When do you think we're going to have the first 150-year-old? I think that person's already alive. Unlocking the Fountain. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. I'm Dr. Brian Goldman. You're listening to White Coat Black Art in the summer. This is an encore of an episode that aired in June 2022. This week, we have something of a detective story involving our CBC colleague, Sonali Karnik. Welcome back to the show, Gemma. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. How are you doing? I'm great, and we haven't seen... Sonali's voice is already familiar to people in Quebec, where she hosts the programs all in a weekend in our Montreal. Style, wisdom, attitude, and grief. I feel like you fit that bill very much. (laughs) I think we, a lot of us do fit that bill. I know, I'm thinking, yeah, that's my mom. Sonali tends to be upbeat. Oh, yeah. Uh, We say poulet, 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 poulet in the studio. Poulet, 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 poulet in French. (laughs) The pop test is always poulet, 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 poulet. But she's been carrying a burden of sadness since her father, Ramesh, died in 2017. Sonali, welcome to White Coat Black Art. Thanks, and hi, Brian. Before I ask you anything, it's hard losing a father. I've lost my dad, and I just wanted to tell you that I'm sorry. Thank you. Can you just give me a little bit of a sense of what kind of a man, uh, you know, what kind of a dad he was? Uh, he was. He came from a very patriarchal culture uh, in India. He grew up with three other brothers. So there are four brothers in one house, and having two sons myself, I know that it was probably a lot of rough and tumble times. Um, And he was just elated to have daughters. And he was like, you know, he just was so happy to be with us. And he really loved Mm. spending time with us. Like, and honestly, we always joked that we were like the only brown family in the campground. My dad loved (laughs) going camping. (laughs) We went every weekend camping in our in our little pop tent camper and you know and he was the typical dad like i learned how to swim by him throwing me in a lake um (laughs) you know uh he he loved bad jokes like he was the dad joke king and he you know later on in life when i think he was sort of done just with himself providing for his family and feeling like he had this gigantic responsibility he got into artistic endeavors like photography and wow. you know part of me is sad that he wasn't well enough or had enough time to really pursue that more so you have a lot of memories you have grief and i gather you have a lot to be frustrated about oh yeah i mean finding an answer to what was seemingly a simple question has been so unbelievably frustrating what was the question that you wanted answered How did my father die? When a parent, a partner, or a child has a sudden health crisis and then dies, you want to know things like why it happened and was there anything that could have been done to prevent it. It's those questions and others that sent Sonali on a five-year quest to uncover the mystery of her dad's death. As you'll find out, Sonali brought with her the tenacity of a journalist to uncover the truth. On their 45th wedding anniversary in 2017, Ramesh was at home with his wife, Sandia, when he had a spell in which he appeared to lose consciousness. Sandia called 911, Urgence Santé in Québec, 
and Ramesh was taken by ambulance to the nearest stroke center, Sacre Coeur Hospital in Montreal. Ramesh spent the next seven weeks in hospital until he died. Sonali, why don't you tell me about the quest that you went on? Well, I'm going to start by telling you my father died in hospital five years ago. He suffered from a couple of different illnesses, including essential tremors and type 2 diabetes. He had complications over the years. He was in and out of the hospital quite a bit towards the end of his life. My mom was an expert at gauging when he really needed more help. But this last time, it was different than past experiences. Here's my mom telling the story of what happened on that day five years ago. He was sitting on the sofa, you know, just relaxing like he usually does. I was doing my crossword puzzles and I suddenly noticed that he was not answering and he looked like he had passed out. So I tried to wake him up and he wouldn't sort of wake up. His eyes weren't completely closed. So I thought maybe his blood sugar was low since he was diabetic. So I quickly tried to give him something to eat, but he couldn't even do that. So then I tried to give him some orange juice. But then I realized it was more than that. So that's why I had to call 911. What did you know about strokes and stroke symptoms before? I didn't know anything much about it at all. So that's why when the guy told me he had a stroke, I was a bit stunned because his heart problems were not that serious. The most serious problems he had was his diabetes, kidneys, and uh, the tremors, but nothing to do with the heart stuff. So it was a little bit of a shock. So I said, of course it can happen. So I went to the hospital with him. What what did you feel like when you went to the hospital every day? I just felt so helpless because it was only, I could see him every time, every one hour for 10 minutes and he was unconscious for two weeks and that they, they couldn't seem to figure out what he had. They, they kept clearly saying it's not a stroke, but nobody could seem to say what it was. As Sonali and Sania explain it, the doctors ordered a battery of tests but came up empty. They found an abnormality on Ramesh's brain scan that was a possible clue. Sandia picks up the story. Nobody could make a definite uh, uh, prediction except to tell me once that he'd had a, a white uh, a ring around the in part of his brain. On the top of his brain, there was a white ring. And they felt that that has some connection to what had happened. And then all of a sudden, he opened his eyes one day, one time when I went in and they had given him medication for ADHD, which I was surprised. I was reading it and I said, why are you giving him ADHD medication? They said it's, that's what's caused him to wake up. How much of a surprise was all of this to you or, or unknown? It was completely unknown and a complete surprise. I had never, ever heard of something like this before. Anytime something happened, it could have been somebody had a brain tumor, somebody had cancer. but Like there was a definite diagnosis. A definite diagnosis about why something like this was happening. They did every single kind of test and they sort of never could come to a definite conclusion. Like, how could something like this happen, you know? It had to have been something connected with his tremors, something in the brain, because obviously he had a problem there. But yet nobody could point a finger. We were all left hanging. Nobody knew. You know, Sonali, I could react in a hundred different ways to what I've just heard. There's just so much to unpack there, but I want to just, I want to focus on a couple of things. First of all, I was panic-stricken just listening to your mom describe those first few minutes when she found your dad on the sofa because you just don't know what's wrong and you're actually starting mm-hmm. to panic. Yeah. So she, you know, and, and then, okay, she calls 911 and he's taken to the hospital. He's alive. And you got to be thinking he's going to be okay. The doctors are going to figure out what's wrong and they're going to fix it. it. It was the start of a seven-week stay in the hospital that ended with him dying. Seven weeks. 
What was that like for him? What was it like for you? It was a roller coaster, but saying it was a roller coaster actually doesn't do it justice. The diagnosis went from a stroke to meningitis to a brain infection to cancer. Nothing, like none of those diagnoses was concrete, was was absolute. After four weeks, as my mom said, he was given Ritalin. He woke up from the coma uh, and that, like, it worked. It gave us so much hope. And people with, you know, who are family members or close to people who have long-term illness, you have these moments where you think everything's going to be okay. And that was that, that was, that was the moment when he regained consciousness. I thought, okay, well, it's going to be a rough road ahead, clearly, but at least he's regained consciousness. And I even remember when my mom called and told me I was at my desk at work and I could barely speak. I was so emotional. I'm emotional now thinking about it. And I really, really thought I was convinced the worst, that was over. And, and you know what, Sonali, and I'll tell you about you know, that's so often we don't make a diagnosis, but the patient just recovers. And yeah. so, OK, everything's OK. And, you know, they, they get teed up to go home. But that didn't happen in this case. You know, the medical team was actually happy about it. Obviously, they, they you've got to be right. When somebody comes out of a coma, that's a good thing. Right. I mean, they were happy with it. But then I spoke with them more. But they were still uncertain about what happened. And then on February 28th, we received the call that something had happened with his heart and we should go to the hospital. And I knew it wasn't going to be good at that point. Uh, And he was already dead when we arrived. So my mom and my sister got there before me. I just saw them weeping. I went in with my husband. I could barely function. I could barely stand up. And after we we said our goodbyes to him, it was like maybe a few minutes afterwards. I just remember... We kind of were just sitting in the chairs outside of the neurology ward and a neurologist came to us and urged us to request an autopsy. He said, because the death took place in a hospital and there was no suspicion of criminal activity, it is not automatically performed. So we requested an autopsy. We'll get to that and that whole process in in just a moment. But again, I want to say that, that I'm really sorry that this happened. How How shocking was it? to you for, for the family to get the call on February the 28th, given the fact that he had been awake and, and the doctors were happy that he seemed to be making progress? It was a major shock. It was a major shock. You know, he regained consciousness. Like that was, we, we just thought the coma was the problem and he's out of it. So there's no more problems, right? Well, I, and I felt so stupid. Like I just felt like, uh, of course, that's not the end of his problems. But you know, the, and I'm, I know I'm not alone. I know so many people have, have gone through this and said, God, maybe I should have known. But should I have? I don't know. So then we come to the subject of the autopsy. And in fact, you know, if you look at the literature on autopsies, they have long been considered to be the gold standard for determining mm-hmm. the cause of death. That, you know, they've been, we, you know, I've done radio columns about how we don't do enough autopsies. That's what doctors say. You know, one study I looked at found that in close to a third of cases, an autopsy results in a major revision of the, of the cause of death. Right. So what was the cause found in the case of your dad? I don't know. That's the problem. We'll be right back. What if there were a fountain of youth pill that could add decades to your life? Would you take it? Unlocking the Fountain is a podcast about the mysteries of aging and the scientific quest to slow, stop, or even reverse it. When do you think we're going to have the first 150-year-old? I think that person's already alive. Unlocking the Fountain. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to White Coat Blackheart. This week, a father's mysterious death and a daughter's search for answers. 
In 2017, Ramesh Karnik collapsed at home and had what paramedics thought was a stroke. They transported him to a stroke center in Montreal, but that initial diagnosis turned out to be wrong. He died seven weeks later. Since then, his daughter, the CBC's Sonali Karnik, and the rest of her family have sought answers. They demanded an autopsy. The story doesn't end there. It turns out an autopsy takes a long time, typically six months. We thought after that six months, we're going to get some answers. In the meantime, though, I got pregnant. It was a high-risk pregnancy, and I had to see an internal medicine specialist. And the doctor strongly urged me to get the results of that autopsy because if there was something genetic or preventable, I should know. What were some of the things that you were most worried about? If it was a communicable disease. Like if he had something that he could have transferred to me and potentially the baby. You know, either an actual infectious disease or uh, something that was inherited. Or something genetic. Yeah, exactly. And I was also worried about my mom. She was his full-time caregiver. Like, what if she got something? So I, I'm, I'm anxious to find out based on what you've, you've been talking about. What did the autopsy tell you? It was never done. Never done? Why not? So my dad had a resistant type of bacteria contracted during a previous hospital stay that apparently prevented the pathologist from performing the autopsy. Antibiotic resistance is a big deal in medicine. A 2022 study using data from more than 200 nations and territories published in The Lancet found that antimicrobial resistant bacteria may have directly led to well over a million deaths in a single year. From what I've read, when someone who dies is known to be carrying a bacterium resistant to antibiotics, the autopsy is considered high risk and must be completed with special precautions. In the case of Ramesh Karnik, it wasn't done. But tissue samples from his brain were taken for analysis. And we learned his brain was sent to a neuropathologist for a consultation, but I have no idea what came of that. So what I was starting to learn is that real life is not like a TV medical drama. You know, things don't get tied up with a neat little bow in 60 minutes. So since then, I've been trying to get to the bottom of this to answer the question, why did he die? And I've been on a very long journey through the deepest, darkest corners of hospital bureaucracy. Like my kids have learned new swear words. Like it has been super frustrating. So here's what I found out. When my dad was still alive, he had a lot of tests, including CAT scans and MRIs. Then after he died, he had a brain biopsy. Uh, he had a brain biopsy while he was alive, but he the, basically he had a brain biopsy after he died as well. And all they could tell me was there was no conclusive diagnosis from all of those tests. I found that a little strange. So I, I started to request information and I waited and waited and waited. And I had to wait so long between various requests for information that I looked for an expert to tell me more about neurological illnesses and diseases. And I found Dr. Leslie Fellows, a neurologist at McGill University here in Montreal. Dr. Fellows did not treat my father, but I told her my father's story. She says it's rare, but not unheard of to have no diagnosis after that many tests. Lots of tests are not that good, in part because sometimes the, sh the distinction between a healthy and unhealthy is actually not that sharp. So the test can only do so well, even if it's telling you exactly the person's blood cell count or whatever, uh, antibody level, that may be falling in an area that's sometimes normal and sometimes abnormal. And sometimes the test isn't that great because it's just not so good at detecting the thing that you're trying to detect. So if the test is not perfect, then you you have to keep that in mind. It's actually a hard thing uh, for the for doctors to keep in mind that just because the test was negative doesn't mean it's not that. It just made it less likely, probably. And if it was positive, it doesn't mean it's that. 
necessarily. If the test is not a great function from that point of view, then you might have to take, you might have to gather more information or repeat the test or, you know, everyone's become a bit of an expert on how, how tests work because, uh, because of COVID testing. So, you know, we know there's two commonly kind, used kinds of tests for COVID and that they are, uh, they have different sensitivities. So the PCR test is more likely to pick up even just a little bit of virus, whereas the, the quick tests at home are less sensitive. So people know that if they really think they have COVID, they were exposed to someone, they have all the symptoms and the test is negative, doesn't mean they don't have COVID. Just means that they might need to repeat the test or the test is missing what they probably have. And so it, it's a great thing. It's a way of thinking about the problem that's uh, based on probabilities and the tests help you refine your probabilities. So I, along with other people, probably have an unrealistic expectation of medical tests. We want clear answers, but it's just not like that a lot of the time. And the thing, Sonali, is it's, it's about diagnosis in general. And I can tell you that as an emergency physician, not a shift goes by when at least one patient comes in with a set of symptoms, some worrisome, some bizarre. We order tests looking for life-threatening things like brain tumors, you know, as in the case of your father, ripped aortas. The tests more often than not come back normal. And as I prepare to discharge the patient, they aren't happy because they have no idea what's wrong with them. Oh, I get that. I mean, you know, when I look back on the days after his death, it was such an emotional time. We needed answers. And I think we have built up science in a way that we just think, in medical science especially, that we're just going to get them. And honestly, after this experience, I felt betrayed. Frustrated is one word. Betrayed is another. Can you say more about, about that feeling of betrayal? After all the tests, all of the specialists, I mean... Brian, this was sent out to the neurological group in Montreal. It was sent out to a wider neurological group. That means doctors not only in my region look at it, but outside of my region to consult on on the tests. You know, everybody consulted on it. I felt as if we should have had learned something. And I want to, like, I also, I I know I sound harsh, but I want to make it clear that I don't blame any person or the hospital. I know they worked so hard to find out what was going on when he was in the ICU. I have no doubt about that. So, you know, just to summarize, your father died a mysterious death. You are counting on an autopsy to answer your your questions as to how it happened, why, was there Mm -hmm. anything that was addressable or preventable. So at that point, no autopsy, a mystery, but, you know... There had to be some working theory. You know, when your dad was admitted to the ICU, the doctors had to have had a working diagnosis, their likeliest theory, best guess of the diagnosis and what we call a differential diagnosis. You know, that's a list of alternate diagnoses if the working diagnosis proves to be incorrect. So, you know, in the emergency department, a woman comes to the ER with pain and tenderness in the right lower quadrant, working diagnosis, appendicitis, differential diagnosis, rule out ectopic pregnancy. So we do a pregnancy test, ruptured Mm -hmm. ovarian cyst, twisted ovary. Uh, Sonali, do you know what the doctors thought at the time and subsequently when they looked back? What was their theory? Cancer was thrown around a lot because of the inflammation of the white matter in his brain. That was found in the MRI. Meningitis was something that it was quickly ruled out. But uh, meningitis was also uh, a possibility. And, of course, that sent everybody in our family into panic. There have to be a lot of clues in your dad's medical records. Have you had a chance to look at them? Nope. It took six different requisition forms at two different hospitals. I went through the whole bureaucracy of requesting documents 
that I had never experienced to this extent before. I don't think this information, like I really didn't think it was going to be so hard to get. Like there was no autopsy, but a sample of my father's brain, as I mentioned, was sent to a neuropathologist for consultation. My family was never called about the results of that consultation. So five years after, um, you know, I'm looking down a rabbit hole. I've learned more about how the system fails than about what actually killed my dad. What do you mean? The results of the consultation were right there in his medical file, but I couldn't have them sent to me directly. I had to get my doctor to request access to those results, and that required making an appointment with a GP in an already backed up medical system. Ask anybody who's tried to book an appointment with a GP, especially in Quebec, just to write me a bloody letter. Like, that's why I had to meet my GP? Are you joking? So basically, the information in the file could only be released with medical or legal reasoning. So if it had something to do with a will or something hereditary, that is the only way they were going to release that information to me. So intense curiosity about a loved one doesn't qualify? Nope. About a loved one, who you're blood related to. Wow. Um, so, <laughs> and, 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 and so what's happened up, up until now? Have you, have you I, did they I write the letter? letter. Yeah, I got the letter from my GP. Um, I sent it in with a new form to request access to that information. And did you get it after that? Oh, that would have been ideal, wouldn't it? Well, uh, finally, they got back to me and said that I was not allowed to see the results of the consultation directly. Um, It had to go either to my physician first, who would forward that information to me, or I get my mother to sign a permission form to release the information to me. So, you know, I, you know, there's, you've got, you've got a parent involved there. So what you're saying is that if your mom had asked for the records directly, they would have been sent to her? I, I guess, but I think she would have also had to get permission from her GP. I'm not, I'm not a, I'm not an aficionado of Quebec law, but, but would that have been sufficient? (laughs) Is anybody though at this point, like, I mean, honestly, everything they kept throwing at me, I was like, are are you joking? Like, and also what would I want to do with CT scan results? (laughs) So like, why is it being gatekept so hard? Like, I understand privacy. I understand security. This seems so extreme. Like, I don't know what this is about, but it is frustrating and it has left me without answers. I have filled out six individual requests to get this information. And so do you have it now? Oh, you would think so. Uh, But it was sent to me by mail. Why? Do you ask? Because the fax machine wasn't working and there was no way to send the file to me digitally because we're still living in the in 1955, I guess. So finally, you've got it now, don't you? Oh, no, 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 no. I'm still waiting for that letter to arrive. That seems totally unacceptable. I mean, what does this say about our medical system that you, a journalist, couldn't access these important medical records? You know, I have dealt with tough stories before where I've had to make phone calls and access information and get permission requests and get lawyers involved. Like, I have done all of that stuff. That has been less frustrating than this. Like, it is just unbelievable. And I even asked them, can you just read out the file to me over the phone? And they said no. They can't even email me a digital copy of that information. And, you know, part of why I wanted to look into my father's desk was was to help other people, if nothing else. Now I have no idea if that's possible. You know, even with all those setbacks, though, my mom, she, she has some advice for people who find themselves in a similar situation. Assist and, and make sure that you get an answer. Because, I mean, I tried my best, but I didn't persist enough, I think. I sort of accepted that they would tell me in a little while. So I said, okay. So they, they told me they would tell me. 
But guess what? They never did. I never ever found out. How do you feel about the difficulty we've had just trying to get any answers? Even if there are none. I know. It's frustrating. I don't know. Maybe there there has to be a better way that these people should learn to deal with the 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 people of the person who's died, their family, to deal with them in a different way. It was not dealt with. I never, ever got a phone call. I never, ever got any meeting after that to tell me properly. And that's what I would have really appreciated. I never, ever got that. Sonali, I don't know if this is going to make you feel better, but if you think being a physician like me gives you better access to final answers... Uh, I hate to break it to you, but I've met many colleagues who, like you, had loved ones who died mysteriously with no conclusive diagnosis. I think the difference with physicians is that we're just better at accepting uncertainty and ambiguity because it's part of our job and we dole it out to patients all the yeah. time. Yeah. I, I, I think as a family, though, we just felt forgotten after he died. It was over because he was gone, but it wasn't over for us. This whole experience has just reinforced that. Part of the whole process of trying to get answers is that, so I'm around for my two kids. If there is anything I can do to prevent the same thing happening to myself and to spare my family this experience, I'll do it. And I also want to protect them so that they're aware of what they could potentially face. But I don't, I don't know what that is. You know, Sonali, at the end of the day, do you think it's more about getting answers or more about managing the expectations of family members who seek answers? Whew, that's a tough one. Um, I've certainly learned I've got to manage my expectations on a number of fronts. But, you know, I still think people deserve answers. Even if there's no answer, I think we need to know. A phone call after would have helped. Anything. People still, in their heart of hearts, want to know. But I, I also have to sort of take the objective point of view that, you know, we're in an overloaded medical system you know, we don't have medical staff available to sit down with people all the time and explain what's happening. Is it the best way to do things? Well, no, but it's the way that it has to function right now. A little empathy wouldn't have hurt. I, yeah, for sure. Sonali Karnick, thank you so much for sharing uh, your kind of unbelievable story with, with, with me. And I just want to say, I hope that your dad's memory is always a blessing to you and your family. It is. Thank you so much, Brian. Sonali has since finally received the letter with the neurologist's report. It didn't say what caused her father's death, but it explained there was something in his brain that could be responsible. It's known as Fragile X Syndrome, a genetic condition that could have caused some of his later health issues, including loss of mobility. Sonali is now trying to determine if she's also a carrier and whether she needs to consider other steps for herself and her children. She says it's not the sense of closure she was hoping for, but any information is better than none. That's our show this week. If you've got a story like Sonali's, email us at whitecoat at cbc.ca. White Coat Black Art was produced this week by Jeff Goods with help from Amina Zoffer and Stephanie Dubois. Our digital producer is Ruby Buiza. Technical operations were by the late Tim Lorimer. We miss him. Our senior producer is Colleen Ross. That's medicine from my side of the gurney. I'm Brian Goldman. See you next week. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.